The Young Readers Festival comes to Rapid City from South Dakota Public Broadcasting. It's Thursday, September 21st. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, some of the brightest stars in children's literature gather in the Black Hills. We'll welcome illustrator Henry Cole. He's worked on more than 170 books, including Forever Home, about a boy and a dog destined to be together. Gary Schmidt's latest novel has a middle school boy attempting the heroic feats of Hercules. We'll talk about the monumental tasks of growing up. Plus, the story of Kenny Higashi. It's a spearfish, South Dakota story. He's a Japanese-American son who went to war for his country and to keep his family out of internment camps. That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Dion Kaler Studio in Rapid City. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. We're going to drop those headphones. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. And here is what we've got coming up this hour. We have the Young Readers Festival, which is in Rapid City this year, and Henry Cole is with us. He has illustrated more than 170 books for children. That is right, 170. I sort of lost count. But it's maybe more than that. <laughs> Estimating. When I saw that you were coming to South Dakota, I was just so happy, and you're like the first person that I said we need to invite him on in the moment. So thank you for saying yes. Nice thing to first say. of all, um, there are so many books we could talk about, but tell us a little bit for people who aren't familiar with your work how you started in the art world. Your mother was an artist. My mom was a fashion illustrator in New York City and in Washington, D.C., but this was a, I, I'm old, so this was a long time ago. Hmm. Mom was an illustrator in the 40s, and she would draw women's hats and gloves and coats and uh, for newspaper and magazine ads. And it was tough going, because it was during the Depression and yeah. after the Depression and in the war. And she would, I can't say she encouraged me to draw, I remember one time she said, you know, you should be a teacher or a plumber, and then you'll always have work. There'll always be something to do. So um, I didn't study art, even though I really liked drawing and I liked illustrating things. I went to Virginia Tech and studied forestry because I loved being outside a lot. I love wildlife and nature and trees and birds. And uh, after college, I got a job teaching science at a uh, a school outside of Washington, D.C., a fabulous independent school. Mm. I taught first through fifth grade. I was there for about 18 years, I think. And I loved it. I loved the kids. We had a great time. I loved teaching science. But we'd, it was a pretty wonderful school, and they would have visiting authors come. And one day, we had the most fabulous person. I couldn't believe she. I was in the same... I breathed in the same air as Jean Craig... <laughs> Hill George, Craighead George, she had written Julie the Wolves and My Side of the Mountain, which I loved, and and there I was in her, in the same room. Well, I had done a little book because we did a unit in second grade on bats. I'd done a little a little book on bats, and I'd done some illustrations for it. And in my dumbness, I just went up to Jean George between, like during a break or something between her sessions, I went up to Jean, and <laughs> Jean. Jean was a very tall, imposing person, so smart and a little intimidating. 
And uh, but I went up to her and I said, oh, "Mrs. George, could you suggest an an editor that I could send my book about bats? I've written this book about bats." And she stared at me for about ten seconds. And she was about 400 feet tall, so it was like a very <laughs> intense stare. And you can imagine these sweat puddles under my arm. I was, I was like, I was like, <laughs> no. going to melt into the ground. But she pulled a napkin off the table and she wrote the name of her editor at HarperCollins mm. and handed it to me. Of course, I've got my little napkin framed in my studio now. But I wrote uh, Catherine Teagan a letter, and and then Catherine invited me up to. New York, and um, they had, just by coincidence, they had, Harper had recently purchased a book about bats written by Ann Earl, and they needed an illustrator for it, and they wow. liked my bat illustrations, and so that was my little foot in the door. And that was about 170 books ago. I it, it was such a nice uh, thing for Mrs. George to do. I'll never ever be able to repay that or it forget is, it. It has seemed to me that children's authors and illustrators are some of the most collaborative and encouraging people in any profession. Do you know, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, nice people. It's been a wonderful career. One of my favorite uh, things is a wordless picture book. Oh, you like wordless ones? I, huh? I have always loved the wordless book. I loved watching my child when she was young turn through the pages. First of all, it's like an art gallery for kids. I mean, when you think about how we introduce children to art, it's really in the pages of these books like yours. And so I have uh, Forever at Home in front of me, if you can even hear us turning the pages on the radio. But to that example, there, there are no words. You, so you are carrying the story yeah, entirely. Right. Tell no me. words means, you know, you have to tell everything in the pictures. Yeah. And it's got to be pretty clear. Um so you're inferring a lot. Uh, I think part of this has come from being in the classroom for a long time. As a teacher, uh, you want kids to imagine and and figure things out. You don't want to just tell them everything all at once. And sometimes I'll get a book and go, okay, the, the story's told, it's great. But at the end of the book, you're finished. And sometimes I think with a wordless book, you can go back it over and over, go through it again and again. And if you're a great teacher in a classroom, you can take a wordless book and say, you know, okay, let's pull up page 10 after you've gone through the story with the kids and you know, looking at the pictures. You can say, let's look at this page. Everybody write three sentences for this page. And why not include four adjectives? And two adverbs. I'm making this a tough assignment for you, right? <laughs> and and it's so interesting to see what a group of 25 kids can come up so differently. It's like getting the same assignment, but yeah. how they see it differently is it's fascinating to me. And, I, and so that that makes them authors. You know that they're writing the story. Then they're actually creating creating part of a book. Yeah, and I like that. I love this very first spread on the right side of the spread. There's just a, a you know, a home. It's in an urban landscape. There's a for sale sign. There's a dog sitting on the steps. And there is a closed door. And a realtor lock is bolting the door. And the expression on the dog's face, yeah. that just tells you <laughs> everything in my mind. Now I have a complete story already on page one about this dog being left behind in a move. 
Um, and I'm filling that in because it's there's no family that might not be what you right. intended, but in my mind, I'm going right to this space. How do you, as an artist, spend time with one frame, one spread, one page, one character, and say, well, you've got to put a whole lot into that, especially if there are no author words to sort of help fill in any of the gaps. Right. Tell me about yeah. that. Well, on the out, page yeah. you're pointing out now, there's this, like you said, there's this one character on this, on a double, double spread. So the first thing you're going to look at is that one character. And the first thing you're looking at on that character is his expression or her expression. That's the first thing. You've yeah. got to be very careful about an expression, in a, especially in a wordless book. The rest of it is, you know, edge to edge, margin to margin is details. And yeah. And you're sort of filling in, after you've seen the expression, okay, this is a sort of a dejected-looking character here. What's going on? And then you can kind of piece together some puzzles and start beginning to understand what's going on in the story. Yeah. It's, um, it, it, and I get asked this by kids a lot when I visit schools. I'll say, um, do you like, do you like the, which is your favorite book? You know, yeah. That's usually what I get. What's your favorite book? What's your favorite book? Um, I can't, I can't remember the last time I got a book back from the publisher, that first book that you got, that advanced copy. I can't remember the last time I actually looked through one because really? you go, oh man, why did I do that? Or I wish I'd done this, or I could have done it this way. There are a million ways to illustrate a book and you're always thinking about which is the best way and you'll never figure that out. I don't think I've actually looked through Forever Home oh. since it's been published, but I do like the story behind it, and it, it's actually based on a true story. I was in Philadelphia attending an ALA uh, conference. I was speaking there. Uh, I can't remember what year it was, but um, it turned out that one of my best friend's daughter and son-in-law lived about a block away from where I was speaking, so I went to go see them, and we were having drinks. We were having a nice yeah. time. And Greg, uh, the son-in-law, said, you know, when I was a kid, I, uh, I really wanted a dog. And my parents wouldn't get me a dog. And it made me sad. But I think he was kind of a slob and they didn't want him to have a dog. So he would take a leash. He would take a leash out for a walk in the morning. To, and then oh, in the evening, goodness. he would take the leash out for a walk in the evening. To show yeah. his parents how reliable he was. This is me walking the dog. If right. I had a dog, this See would be. See how good I would be. And I thought, okay, now that is the sweetest story ever. I kept thinking, okay, I can see Greg as a little kid and he's got on a raincoat and it's raining or slushy or something yeah. awful outside. But he's dragging this leash behind him to show his parents that he is quite the quite the good guy to have a to have a pet. Yeah. And that's where that stories uh that's where that story came from you uh, populate your books with characters from all kinds of backgrounds why is it important to, to yeah. you to make sure that the reader sees themselves in the book yeah, and I that the reader so. sees people who are not like them in a picture book well all, both those reasons and it just makes for a more interesting book right yeah, yeah. definitely there is um this is um Pen and ink, micron pens, those little pens that those I can just buy pens. at Hobby Lobby. You oh, can do this with. I love this old. <laughs> okay, listeners, race out to the art supply store. Get these little micron pens. The ones I use are zero zero five, so they're the smallest 
ones. Yeah. They make they make a little line as wide as a hair. It's a very, very thin little line. And I cover a page with those little lines. It takes me quite a while, but I love working with them. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'm just finishing up a book um, as yet untitled. We don't even have a title for it yet. I've finished the interior pictures. The uh, cover has, has yet to be done, but they're done with this Micron pen, the 005. <laughs> and the pages, each of the pages are, uh, shoot, 20 by 26 by 20 or something like that, okay. each page. So a spread is twice that, 40 wow. by 20 something. Yeah. And there are 40 pages. So it's <laughs> a, uh, no, 48, sorry, 48 pages. So it's been a lot of work. I started this book um, April of 22, and I'm okay. just finishing it up. What are you looking? Are you listening to music? Are you looking out um, the window? Like when you're drawing, what else is really happening? Embarrassing in the room? question, really. You really want me to answer? I like that? to. We just. We really just. <laughs> we pull no on? punches. We pull no punches on the show. What's going on in the background? Yeah. Um, it surprises me that um, I love listening to music. I love all kinds of music. Everything you can imagine. I really love music, but it's surprising how you can get tired of music when you're concentrating. So what I yeah. like to have on in the background is an old black and white movie, preferably one that I've watched 6,000 times. It can just be running on in the background and it's just like a comforting thing that's that's muffled in the background while I'm working. Yeah. For example, um, Now Voyager, great <laughs> movie. I'll have Now Voyager. <laughs> I love I'm embarrassing myself. No, I love it. Uh, if it. Depending on the holiday, I'll have White Christmas on, but... Bing Crosby, you know, that kind of yeah. thing will be in the background. Yeah, that's you how have, I like to work. You mentioned, I'm not sure if you mentioned it while we were talking here, if I just knew this from before, but you have a forestry degree. How about that? And you, know? you taught science and, mm. and nature um, is a through line for you. Even in Forever Home, there's this urban landscape and Tango Makes Three is a story about real penguins in the Central Park Zoo. But you always have this sort of, you know, ecological thread in stuff that you, if, I'm not sure that people would know it if they didn't know that about you, but it becomes very clear when you do know that mm -hmm. about yeah, you. I, I agree. Yeah. Um, the book about the the paper bag that you reuse every day True for story, three years. The paper bag. You know, yeah. not sort of this idea of not wasting. Yeah, Tell exactly. me about growing up on a farm and and studying forestry and just how that still informs your life today. Listen, I think uh, sometimes I really do believe I was the luckiest person to have grown up on a farm. It was a dairy farm in Virginia. But we, I was the youngest of five kids. We were outside most of the time. You almost felt guilty if you were inside. Not, not. We had, a, we had a pond, there was a creek, there was the woods, the fields, the barn. There were places to play. And I think that's one thing that really worries me about kids today is that they're inside a lot. It's very uh, isolating, mm -hmm. playing with your devices instead of connecting with things outside. Um, my earliest memories are you know, looking for four-leaf clovers and, and um, identifying birds and, and catching fireflies. Those are very important things. They connect you with outside. And it, like, like it, it wasn't long ago I was in a Home Depot. And there was a mother and a small child and a little spider ran across the aisle between in one of the aisles and this kid freaked out and the mother 
stomp this little spider into like atomic particles. Mm. And, and it re- reminded me when I was a kid, I was probably about six, I had a wonderful aunt, my mom's sister, Aunt Marion came out to visit uh, one day and, and a, there was a spider on the kitchen floor. And Aunt Marion, without missing a beat, picked an envelope off the, off the kitchen table. She scooped that little spider up. She uh, walked down the hall, out the front door, out the screen door, onto the front porch, and tapped him into the bushes and the shrubbery and came back in and kept talking to my mom like nothing, nothing at all happened. Instead of this panic attack about a spider, she was just very thoughtful and uh, kind to this little creature. Mm. And it's, it's stuck with me for a long time. So yeah, there's a little theme of wildlife, nature that runs through my books, I think. But it, it's, uh, I think it's very important. Well, Henry Cole is uh, in schools and in the community today. The Young Readers Festival is in Rapid City today. It's in Deadwood and Lead tomorrow. So you get to meet all kinds of kids who will ask you what Terrific. your favorite book is. Oh. But <laughs> we appreciate you spending time with us here today and My talking about pleasure. your work as a writer. And your work has meant a lot to, to me. I think picture books for adults can also find that resonance. Either it's a, a thing from childhood that we didn't have in childhood mm. or it's a memory of childhood. Um what a kind thing to say. Thank so you. So thank very much. you for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh, and we're broadcasting live today from the Dion Kaler studio in our Rapid City Spaces. And Gary Schmidt is sitting here with me now. Welcome back, Gary. Thanks. Thanks. Good morning. All right. So you have written how many books now? Oh, wow. This is going to sound obscene. <laughs> I think I'm north of 50. North of 50. Yeah, but all of them, not all of them are readable. Some are boring. You know, oh. textbooks, are, they're just boring. So we have to, I, maybe I shouldn't count those. Okay, you can count whenever you want. All okay. right, so we're going to get listeners in, in the conversation with us because I have in my hand the labors of Hercules Bill. So if you've ever studied Greek mythology and have heard of the labors of Hercules, that's an old story, and the mythic hero is given 12 seemingly impossible tasks with all of his divine strength and com- cunning. Right. He is able to conquer each and every one and a couple of monsters along the way. And why not give that to a child? Yeah, exactly. Gary Schmidt, what were you thinking? Okay, so <laughs> this boy is named Hercules. He has not hit his growth spurt yet. He is no. the smallest kid in his class, and he has a very unusual school. It's a science school right. um, in the Northeast, Cape Cod, right? On Cape Cod. On Cape Cod, and he has a teacher who is a Marine Lieutenant Colonel <laughs> who is a toughie for sure. Tell me where he, this teacher character came from. Uh, he projects toughness. He projects toughness. Um, and it's been a... He's an ex-Marine. He actually appears in a book called Wednesday Wars mm-hmm. as a, a young kid, Danny Hupfer. And years have gone by, obviously, now, and he is now retired from his being being a Marine. Wait, wait, wait. What, say what you just said again. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that. Yeah, Danny Hupfer in Wednesday Wars is Lieutenant Grows Colonel Hupfer. to be... Oh. And at the end of the book, he's... Bad reader, would, Lori, bad reader. No, I no, didn't make that connection. Well, there's no... There's only a few things that would hint at it, and one of them is the fact that Hercules, in his grief, reminds him of his own grief and losing his best friend, Holling. Yeah. And, but that's in the third book. 
So there's all these connections that you don't really need to know. You don't need to, to know enjoy. that. Right. I enjoyed enjoy the book the without, thought. even though I should have known that. No, there's no reason to. A fabulous story in the very beginning, which comes up in Hercules Bill um, throughout the book, is this uh, lieutenant colonel teacher saying, you know, we're going to read Hatchet by Gary Paulson. Yeah. And immediately one of the students in the class is like, well, when do you need a hatchet or what? You know, they're yeah. kind of giving him a hard time about the importance of a hatchet. Right. But this is a story about young men doing incredibly difficult, dangerous things in the service of their community to mm-hmm. save people, to save lives, to to be strong. Um, you really... T- tell yeah, me a little bit about has... that, because I think we're in an age where it, it sometimes we don't want to show kids doing things that are really hard. Mm. And by it's... hard, I mean like rescuing people out of crumbling buildings <laughs> yeah. hard. I don't mean like there getting an that. A on the test hard. Right. No, no. He's, yeah. he's given really difficult things to do. He has to match what Hercules, the mythical Hercules, did. Mm-hmm. So when you have the Hydra, for example, that the mythical Her- Hercules has to kill nine heads. He has to find something that matches that. And emotionally, it's really, really difficult for him because what it tends to be is uh, happens in a hospital. Yeah. And there are other times when Hercules acts in ways, the mythical Hercules acts in ways that are pretty creepy. Mm-hmm. So he kills a lot of animals that for really no, no reason. He kills or is responsible for the death of the queen of the Amazons for no reason other than he wants a belt. Um, and so I'm trying to adapt that and... When Hercules Beale, when my character is doing that, yeah, there are things that are really difficult that he has to work through. And that's the whole point, because yeah. Hercules, the mythical Hercules, gets the 12 labors because he's lost his family, and he's ter- I mean, just destroyed by that grief. Well, so is Hercules Beale. Yeah. And so he's trying to figure out how to do that. And so when he does certain things, it's working through issues of grief often. Yeah. Children's literature, by and large, deals with difficult things and I think it's worth saying again and again why and it's because kids deal with difficult things what happens when we try to protect our children from the books that say the parents died or from the books that say I'm afraid of this or I can't handle my grief or I'm so angry all the time I don't even know what to do with that anger Mm -hmm. what happens when we don't put those books in, in kids hands when they need them well, and here you go back a long time to C.S. Lewis, who has yeah. this great essay on writing for children, where he talks about those who want to keep kids away from, say, a book about dragons or about monsters that get slain by knights. And he says, well, what happens when they really do encounter monsters in real life? Will they be those knights that can slay those if they have never seen one do it? And that's where you get them. That's a pretty powerful thing. Yeah. And it seems to me that children's books, which are really about home, right? I mean, in the end, the great theme of children's books is home. What does that mean, and how do you get there, and how do you stay there? Young adult is about leaving home, but children's books are about home itself. What happens when home isn't easy? Yeah. Um, it seems to me that some books about that seem pretty important. You were one of those boys who was placed in the in the category of you're not going anywhere, you're not going to go to college, you're one of the pumpkin kids, the you're dumb the kids, kids, the right? stupid kids. Yeah. As, as early as what, like first grade? First grade. You were kind of, so when you write for kids now, how do you keep that, that, that feeling that you probably still have as an adult who has proven all of that to be uh, incredibly fall, flawed, if not abusive, um, 
when you're writing for kids now, who are you? Are you writing for that kid too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You write it to, in some ways, you write to your own childhood. I mean, A.A. A. Milne is writing not about Christopher Robin. He's writing about himself and losing the innocence of childhood. Um, and of course, of course, when we, when, I, I think this is probably true of many kid writers, when we think about a scene or a character and we're wondering what happens next, we think about, well, what would I have done in fourth grade and fifth grade and seventh grade? And how would I have responded to this? How would, do I wish I had responded to this? All those sorts of things are there. And you do go back to your own experience. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'm always writing to that kid who in first grade was told, no, you're pretty, you're pretty dumb. And yeah. You won't make it. How did you get to the point where you could believe in yourself and talk over that voice of that first grade teacher who said, you're not going to make it, kid? How did you well, believe the, that you The opposite, gonna, right? So yeah. the great teacher. The great the teacher. The teacher who can say to you, you're good at this. Yeah. Um, or it's not, it's not just about the grades, but that you've got skills in this area. Um, or someone who can say, a teacher who can say to you, why don't you think about going in this direction? Um, I hope we've all had that experience because that's huge. The teacher who can do that, that means everything. Can we tell one of the trials of Hercules Beale in here without ruining the book? Can we talk about the tree? Or will that, we, it's fall. Oh, the tree where, the tree. where they paint the picture. The, the Is leaves. that okay? Sure. So one of the things helps set this up, <clears> and they really, and Hercules is going to learn throughout this too that these, that these feats, these um, these challenges are best done with other people, right. with, with in your community. in community. Right. This is one of the things he's learning. He's lost his parents, right. and he's learning that he hasn't lost everyone or everything, which doesn't make the loss less, right. but it does inform his life today. So he decides with one of his friends to paint every leaf this isn't one of the. This isn't one of the death-defying things, but it's no, pretty but darn this is, good. This is comedy. Right? Where this is, this is all comedy. The leaf peepers are coming to Cape Cod, and the leaves right. haven't changed yet, and they're disappointed. And so it's this great search to find the perfect tree. And these kids say, "We got the perfect tree for you. It's over here." But first, we need to buy some spray paint. Where in the <laughs> world did you come up with that idea? I needed something to be golden, right? So something <laughs> had to work. And of course, you think maple trees, right? In New yeah. England, October. Yeah. Um, for right now, I expect I'm just back from Maine, and already they're turning well. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you're in Spearfish yeah. Canyon. I mean, like, go up to Spearfish Canyon here, and yeah, yeah, the leaves are gonna be. We're gonna be talking about them on the radio all fall. Oh my gosh. Yeah, when's the best time yeah. to take a drive? Yeah. So they decided because um, it's late, and sometimes this is true in New England, where the the season just goes on and on and on. Yeah. So before they turn, so here are all these tourists who people in New England tend to make fun of, mm -hmm. who are coming up there from New York or wherever um, to see the, the beautiful colors, and they don't show. So they're really frustrated. So these kids, knowing that they need to have this as the next labor, decide that they're just going to paint all of these, uh, this one tree, so the spectacular. And, of course, it rains, or the fog comes in, actually. Fog comes in. And in, on Cape Cod, if you've ever been there, when a fog comes in, it comes in really fast. Um, I once got lost in a parking lot because the fog <laughs> came in so fast on Cape Cod. And, of course, it brings all the moisture that lays on the leaves, and, of course, it takes out all the still wet paint. Yeah. And, yeah, that's meant to be just the comedy there. It's so there. funny because the way you have it laid out, too, and before that moment when 
Every, it all goes. It's it's revealed to be a ruse before yeah. that moment, which I think is one going to be just one of the great like pranks in children's literature history, along with some other things that I could think of. But <laughs> um, it's gorgeous. It's yeah. everything. There's prisms of light, and everything hits with the fog. Right. That's exactly exact, what they everybody wanted. gets what they wanted, yeah. and then they all say, "There's nothing real anymore." When yeah. it turns out to be all the adults are like, "Well, I guess we've been fooled again." Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it. It's so funny in the pacing and the way that you write it, and then it becomes so poignant and heartbreaking right. that what this is, this right. moment is really about, is that we've lost everything that's real, and everything is just a. A show. Yeah. And that's humor, right? I mean, really yeah. good humor. Robin Williams' good humor yeah. always has, it's just the other side of something that's very, very difficult, or often very difficult, or hurtful, perhaps, or um, certainly with something that produces loss. And humor is all, in some ways, our whistling in the dark that, okay, given this, I'll, I'll respond to it in this way. And so by the end of that, it's exactly right. Now, it is saved in the next chapter where there's another labor which sort of gets them back in the good graces of the town. <laughs> the redemption comes, right? yeah. yeah. But for this one there, yeah, there's hurt there. Yeah. Tell and me a feeling it. that, I mean, we're all, when we feel like we've been fooled or cheated, we feel like a jerk. And yeah. yeah we believed hurtful. something was could be that beautiful exactly. and then it wasn't. And then it wasn't. And I think that's a metaphor for, you know, like you believe that you had a happy family and then this horrible thing happened and took it away. You know, like I believed I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have ever believed it. I shouldn't have trusted. I shouldn't have whatnot. There's just a lot happening there. Yeah. And it's just so well written. Okay. So. Thanks. You type these things on, with a manual typewriter still? This is how you used to work. Yeah. My father, when, um, when his bank went to um, computers, my father still kept his um, 1953 Royal Manual. Yeah. You know, it weighs <laughs> 60 pounds. It's made, <laughs> it's made out of iron and looks like a battleship gray iron. You know, it's just fantastic. So I got that in high school and I typed everything in high school on it. I typed my dissertation on it. Wow. Um, and it's, you use the, t- the tools that you really are used to and that you would like. I like the feel of those keys. I like the feel of the... Uh, Oh, the sound that it makes. I like the fact that at the end of every line, the thing goes ding. Ding. And it sort of says to you, good job, do it again, (laughs) do it again. I love that. I love that stuff. (laughs) And I like the the papers that are piling up on the side of the desk, that pile of pages that you've finished. All that is really, really cool. So I end up typing a novel six, eight, ten times um, before I actually put it into the computer. Because I, I obviously can't send that to a right. publisher. I mean, they would just send it back and say, no. We don't have your yeah, secretary no. here. Yeah, you have to. Okay, but then I remember this story from True, unless I'm misremembering it. You just you have a fireplace where yeah. if you don't like it, you just walk over and burn it. Oh, every every draft gets burned. Oh, my gosh. I can't handle that. Yeah, That's like fall out yeah. of my chair. I can't handle. No, I You got, burn a draft? I, I got like, yelled why? at by a... Uh, a archivist once. I'm not yelling at you. That, I'm just, I'm just wondering like what? It's sort of catharsis. Yeah. You feel like, okay, these pages, I got this far with them and that's good. But now the next pages are better and I can get rid of these and it's done. And there is a catharsis about that. I mean, there's so little that's pleasurable about the process, right? You're sitting at your desk and your border collies at your feet and that's cool. But it's for the most part, you're sitting there by yourself so to have something that goes on, 
<laughs> some some <laughs> level of pleasure. That's that's does that's works. It's very real too. Yeah, yeah. And I get I get today that that, that feels like it's so anachronistic that someone would type something from on a nineteen fifty three machine, um, that you'd use scrap paper, that you had I mean, I get all that. Um and certainly as a writer today probably wouldn't do that just for efficiency's sake. And certainly new writers wouldn't there's no reason for you to go back to an old technology. But the technology that we're using today will be outdated in twelve years completely, I'm sure. And you may you may still stay with it just because it's what you're used to. Okay, point taken. But do you think that the process helps your work because there is an authenticity to your work again and again and again that I'm not saying couldn't be done if the first draft was yeah. on an iPad, but um, it has a sense of patience to it. That I don't, I never get the yeah. sense that you are rushing through, even the story we were just talking about, the way it unfolds, I think mm-hmm. has to be at least informed by the pace at which you work. Then that's a very good reading because that's in fact exactly one of the reasons I still do it. It, yeah. it slows me down. And I, I get we live in a culture that equates speed with goodness, like it's a good thing as long as it gets faster and faster and faster. But when did we ever get to the point when we actually believe that a hamburger is better because it can be done in eight seconds? I mean, it can't, right? Mm-hmm. We know that. And I don't think that writing quickly is a, is a benefit. I think particularly for a younger writer that that's really a negative side of things. Um, if you are forced to write, do things over and over and over again, type and retype and retype, if you are forced to take a page, and I, when I cut and paste... I, you know, I literally have scissors. <laughs> that's, I am cutting the pages in pieces, and I, mm-hmm. I tape them to new pages. That slows me way down. And, you know, I know I won't... Jane Yolen has 400 books out. I'll never make that. But okay, you know, I, I don't feel like I need to get to 400. Mm-hmm. And I'll slow down, and that does affect the way I write. Well, the part where Hercules is turning in these reflections yeah. on every labor that he does, and he's supposed to do a certain amount of words, yeah. is very typical of students his age. You know, he's trying to get, like, I don't want to go over 150 right, words. Exactly. Or, and so he's marking on the side right. how many words this is because he's counted them up. Well, that's how we used to do it. Absolutely. You didn't have a word count thing. Right. And I just wonder if anybody would have thought of that. If they oh. weren't sitting at a typewriter, like maybe not, maybe <laughs> or not. if they hadn't done that as a child, like yeah. a kid today, yeah, you when would. they're our age or your age or my age, I, I don't know that they're going to be like, remember when we used to pencil? <laughs> Absolutely. And then you know you'd make a lot one word so that you know it's actually two words. Right. Then, now you can cut. You know you've got or the next very a very very yeah. So like <laughs> can't I make cannot. You know, and it's, it's, you're right. It's, mm-hmm. It is something from out of the past. It also drove me nuts in the book because I wanted to hit 150 exactly. <laughs> so I kept counting and counting. And you know how back, even back then when we did it, it's so easy to lose track right. of when you get up to one, 140s. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to get it wrong. So, yeah, I counted and recounted those things yeah. forever. And then it finally gets to the point in the book where he doesn't care. He goes well count. over yeah. 200. Mm-hmm. And when he, it's, he's a writer now. He's a writer. And yeah. he's expressing his deepest self through his writing. Oh. Um, all of that comes out simply because of the word count. This book we've been mostly talking about is The Labors of Hercules Beale. Also check out The Wednesday Wars and OK For Now, just like that. 
many, many um, books from Gary D. Schmidt's catalog. He's a Newbery Honor winner, National Book Award finalist. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much. This is good. Welcome back to In the Moment on listener-supported South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, before December 7th, 1941, Kenny Higashi worked and lived on a vegetable farm near Spearfish, South Dakota with his family. After that fateful day, his world changed drastically. Kenny was the son of Japanese immigrants. And in the aftermath of the attack on Pearl Harbor, American soldiers showed up at the family farm with a horrible choice. Kenny's story, including his time with the 100th Infantry Battalion, is told in the children's book A Place for Harvest. And we have the author and the illustrator in our studio with us right now. Lauren Harris is the author. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. And Felicia Hoshino is the illustrator. Welcome, Felicia. Hi. Thank you. Um, This is a book that is... um, from the South Dakota State Historical Society Press, but it's had a life far beyond Spearfish, South Dakota, because of the quality of the book, the beauty of the illustration. So I think, first of all, that should be said, that it is um, um, at the level of any national children's picture book, but also because of the topic so much. And Lauren, I want to talk to you because you, you knew Kenny Higashi. You got to meet him. You were a journalist. Tell me a little bit about finding the story and then deciding this is a story that kids should know about. Yes, well, as I tell kids, often um, everybody has a story to tell, but oftentimes we don't hear about it because no one asks. And so I recalled a story from my family um, that really hadn't been told, and I felt like I should write that. Um, And I used to be a teacher, and so I am interested in teaching children about our history and um, showing them the different aspects of of our our uh, history and our culture here, and um, so I started to write that book. Um, it's called The Plum Neighbor, and it is centering around our family and their relationship with their Japanese American neighbors during World War II. And as I researched that book, um, I was thinking to myself. What I know from journalism, that it's best to ask someone who is there if you really want to know what happened. And I thought, I wish I could meet one of the veterans of this unit of soldiers that I had just discovered, the 100th 442nd Regimental Combat Team, an all-Japanese-American unit um, that did incredible things. And lo and behold, I discover that Kenny Higashi is almost literally my neighbor, that living in Spearfish. And he had never really shared his story with anyone. Wow. How did you convince him to talk to you? So <laughs> well, he old, was 94 was, at yeah, the he's time. 94, yeah. Yes, he was 94 at the time I, that I met him. And um, he showed me his Purple Heart Medal, which mm-hmm. was really exciting to see. And then I just started to ask him about it. How did you get it? What it what did, what was going on? You know, can you tell me? And he did. It took many months, and actually, I was I would visit him several times over several years yeah. um, to ask him about it. But um, so, for listeners who don't know, it's President uh, FDR Roosevelt who signs an executive order. Imperial Japan has bombed Pearl Harbor, and there is um, distrust of Japanese Americans at this point. FDR says. We're going to start 
relocation camps, which is a very nice way of saying a concentration camp, because that's where these people are taken. They're ordered to go there. And Felicia, you illustrated this book, but this is also a family story for you, because your father, I understand, was an infant when he was taken. Two months. Two months old. Yeah. Tell me about your family story, if you can. Sure. Um, so, so yes, um, my uh, both sides. Uh, my my father's side. Um, he again, yeah, he was too, a baby uh, when he and um, his family living in um, kind of uh, Southern California area. They were also farmers, like the Higashis. And um, they were uh, forcibly moved to a post in Arizona. And so uh, my father spent the first three years of his life um, behind barbed wire. And um, he doesn't have um, really strong memories about his time, but he kind of remembers feeling um, the stress and of living in, in those conditions. Of course, they tried to make it as, um, you know, uh, starting schools and everything and, and trying to make it as, you know, regular uh, as possible within the barbed wire, um, the fence area. So, um, and then on my mom's side, who was originally from uh, Washington, they her side was uh, sent to a Minidoka. Mm-hmm. And um, so... Uh, but she was born after, in 1946, so, yeah. So how, is this a story that you heard growing up, or was it something that people, it was, it's very, it has to be incredibly difficult to talk about, for starters. Did right. you talk about it? Right, no, I, I, so all of this, I didn't really know, um, or firsthand, hear about it firsthand from my grandparents. Um, it was something, um, if I questioned it, I was told, you know, they just don't want to talk about it because just to, it is an unpleasant time. And, um, but, uh, one of my cousins, um, who went to UC Berkeley, um, she did, uh, one of her papers on it. And so she actually documented a lot of the information that I know of. Um, and she was able to interview my grandmother, um, Chizuko Arikawa and kind of get a little bit more details, um, about what it was like being there, and um, but yeah, it, it wasn't something. Yeah. And it, and honestly, even at my time growing up in San Francisco, um, it's different now. But I didn't learn about it in schools or anything. Um, uh, so so yeah. One of the things that strikes me about this story, um, Lauren, too, is in Spearfish. I mean, Ken Higashi is old enough. When the American soldiers come, they say you have a choice. Like one of the brothers, they don't have to, to go to war because they're farmers. And so they're allowed to stay and do their agricultural work. But in this case, they say one of you has to go because or, or your family is going to get uh, relocated, which means no one's going to pay the taxes on the farm. The far, you know, A lot of people lost everything because of the location, even if they survived the location, the relocation itself. Um, Ken Higashi volunteers. And, you know, throughout the book, he's sort of the, the kid who volunteers for everything. You know, he's the one who will do the hard work. He's the one um, who will say, I'll help my mom. He's, he's that kind of person. And now he says, sure, I'm going to go uh, fight with fellow Japanese Americans in, in this war for my family, but also 
for my country. But one of the things that struck me was the community around him that said, we will never let them take you. Now, they didn't have to link arms in front of the gate of the farm. We'll never know what would have happened. But they were telling them that. Yes, and I actually True? Did. I mean, yes. that's true, a story. That's not something you added to make it a nicer story for kids. No. Okay. No, I actually, he, he told me that that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And I did have several people in the community tell me that they would have linked arms or something more strong um, uh, across the farm if they had to, to keep the family there. They were not, they refused to let them be taken. And there's debate about whether they would have had to be taken. Mm-hmm. Um, generally speaking, the families that were on the coast were the ones that were sent to the camps. Uh, but I do have, I did uncover some evidence that makes it possible that they probably would have been asked to leave the spearfish area. Just some of the military activity that was going on that wasn't widely public knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what the message of this book Kenny was that kind of kid who really did want to volunteer and help out in any way that he could. But that attitude of selfless service really embodies the, the unit itself, the 100-442nd. That is what the, all of them were like. They, they threw themselves into the war effort. And many of them did have the fam- their families. They left them behind barbed wire. Um, many of them, they were aware that they were in a segregated unit. Many of them had felt the discrimination in their communities, but they still, I've listened to hours of oral histories and, and they, they, I heard these men say they still felt like America was worth it. And that, that fighting for the freedom for future generations to not experience discrimination was more important to them than their comfort or their, just the, 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 justice being served kind of feeling, but they, they just threw themselves into what they had in front of them. Yeah. Famously known for helping rescue the Lost Battalion. Tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about some of the action of this unit. Yeah, so the Lost Battalion, October 1944, is quite famous. That's If anyone has heard of the 100th 442nd, that's usually where what they would have heard. Um, and Kenny was there. That's That was, that I referenced that scene in my first book. And so it was a real delight for me to meet Kenny after having read things about it and have him actually tell me what it was like. He could tell me the temperature and how he felt and what it was like, the sounds. And it was hard for him, I know, but he did volunteer that information and tell me, and I appreciate that. I'm very grateful. So, um, the there was a group of sol- of army soldiers that got trapped by the Nazis. They it was a terrible situation. They couldn't even really move without being just attacked. Um, they no one could get in or out. They couldn't even get these guys supplies. Uh, I think it was several weeks they tried to get them out. It was getting to the end. They thought they were pretty much gonna die. And then the the army sent in the hundredth. 442nd, and they were able to rescue them, but at great loss. They they lost more soldiers than they had rescued, but mm. um, they were able to get they're, it done. They're the Purple Heart Battalion. That's right. They that's take their on nickname. a lot of injuries mm-hmm. because of the action that they undertake. And, and Felicia, I think you do such a lovely job of 
the beautiful community and home and family and spearfish and fish coming out of the creek and then take us to Europe where there is a, a, a palette change in the colors without being something that children can't handle. Mm. Um, and then, you know, they give Kenny his purple heart and say, would you like to go home now? And he said, I really would. <laughs> I would <laughs> like to go home to spearfish now. And he does. Mm-hmm. And he stayed there the rest of his life. He um, was a mail carrier and then worked in the post office there, serving the community. That's a beautifully done book. It is called A Place for Harvest, the story of Kenny Higashi. And um, my guests have been Lauren Harris and Felicia Hoshino. Felicia, thank you. Thank you. Lauren, thank you so much, too. Thank you. All right, the Young Readers Festival in Rapid City continues today in the Rapid City School District and at the Monument tomorrow. The programs move to Deadwood and Lead. Now, if you like children's literature and you've loved this show, Saturday morning at 9 a.m. local time in Deadwood, Kate DiCamillo will be with me. I'll be with her on the uh, stage at the Holiday Inn Express in Deadwood, and we'll talk about the power of fairy tales the tale of Despero and her new book, The Puppets of Spellhorst. If you want to share this uh, hour with children's literature stars, you can go to our podcast and download that wherever you get your podcasts. And from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, that is our show for today. We hope that it served you. I'm Lori Walsh. Thanks for listening.